0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is your 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always, our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss.
1: Hi, everybody. There was a light drizzle and the remnants of a fog as the marine sulfur queen pulled away from the port in Beaumont, Texas, with its load of molten sulfur. On the morning of Saturday, February the 2nd, 1963. The journey to Norfolk, Virginia, should have been a simple five day journey through the Gulf of Mexico, past the Straits of Florida, and up the Atlantic East Coast. But when the tanker failed to arrive on schedule, the hunt was on. A search from air and sea lasted for days. But all that was ever found of the ship was a single life preserver with the name Marine Sulfur Queen stenciled onto it. And with that, the ship and its crew of 39, including a pair of merchant marines from Akron, sailed into history as victims of the Bermuda Triangle. The Bermuda Triangle is a legendary stretch of water where a number of aircraft and ships are said to have disappeared under mysterious circumstances. The theory of this mystical vortex was given birth in the early 1950s and grew into a phenomenon, spinning off books and TV shows and documentary films. And just about every published collection on the matter Includes the story of the doomed marine sulfur queen. Two crewmen of the ship make this an Ohio mystery. John Hoosh Jr. was 43 years old, born in 1919 to John Sr. and Elizabeth Hoosh, Austro Hungarian immigrants who had settled in Akron. He had a sister, Elizabeth, and a brother, William. John graduated from the city's Garfield High School, and when the U.S. joined World War II, he enlisted in the Army. After receiving a medical discharge, he joined the Merchant Marine. Now, in wartime, Merchant Marines are attached to the Navy and often used to transport troops or material. In peacetime, they transport cargo and passengers, often working aboard private or federally owned merchant vessels. John sailed with the Merchant Marines for 12 years before returning home in the late 50s. He landed a job at the Billow Funeral Home in Akron and had a side job washing walls for homeowners. But after three years, he heard the call of the sea again and rejoined the Merchant Marines. He took a position on the Marine Sulphur Queen as a wiper that made him responsible for keeping the engine and the machinery clean. His parents were in Bath Township by this time, living near the corner of cleveland Maslin, and West Bath Roads. That's where they were when John called his mom right before the Marine Sulphur Queen departed Texas. I'll call you again when I reach Norfolk, he told her. They were his last words. On the ship with John was Albert Van Sickle, a 37-year-old sailor who had his own ties to Akron. Albert was a second assistant engineer responsible for maintenance and repair of the ship's systems. He'd been working on the Sulphur Queen for three years. Albert was one of eight children born to Mabel and Albert Van Sickle, and he was raised on a farm in Central City, Nebraska. It's not clear why, but at some point around the 1940s, at least three of the Van Sickle siblings moved to Akron. Albert, his brother Gerald, who became a printer at the Akron Beacon Journal, and his sister Mary, who married a man named Olinger and began a family. Albert's time in Akron was brief. In 1949, he moved to Baltimore, Maryland, married and had two children of his own, a son, Stephen, and a daughter, Valerie. Like his crewmate, John Hoosh Jr., Albert was a merchant marine. He joined during World War II, left for a time, then returned to it about seven years before the Sulphur Queen's doomed voyage. The Sulphur Queen was a vintage tanker built to transport oil during World War II. In 1960, she was converted to specifically carry liquid sulfur. That's when her name was changed to reflect her new mission. On February 2, 1963, her tanks were filled with 15,260 tons of the stuff. The first two days of the journey were uneventful. On February 4, a crewman sent out a personal radio message which gave the ship's position as 230 miles southeast of New Orleans. When the ship failed to pull into its Norfolk dock at noon on Thursday, February the 7th, it was listed as missing, and a search began. It lasted 19 days. In all, 63 planes would be used to scour 348,000 square miles of the Atlantic Ocean and the Straits of Florida, More than two weeks after the ship was reported missing, a Navy torpedo retriever operating in the clear blue azure waters of the Gulf Stream found some debris floating. It was about 14 miles southwest of Key West, Florida. A Coast Guard patrol and a Navy destroyer escort, the USS Peterson, fled to the scene. They pulled up several pieces of flotsam, including timber, An oil can, a flare, and a life jacket. Now, the life jacket was stenciled with the name Marine Sulfur Queen. But the flare was proved to be from a missing light plane, so it threw into question what the rest of the debris was. There was no proof it came from the ship. The Navy reported the debris was from a spot where they had laid a practice minefield but they insisted the mines were not explosive, and all of them were recovered after the exercise. Now the ship could have gone down in bad weather. There were severe Atlantic storms in its path, churning up waves as high as 14 feet. But it seemed remarkable that the ship could vanish without a word. The tanker carried two high-frequency radio transmitters and had a radio telephone, yet no one had picked up a distress signal from her. or became disabled and driftled into those hostile waters. This was the year after the Cuban Missile Crisis, when Fidel Castro agreed to allow the Soviets to bring nuclear missiles to the island, and that brought the world's two superpowers to the brink of nuclear war. And the same month that the Sulfur Queen disappeared, President John F. Kennedy instituted an embargo against the island, Prohibiting U.S. nations from traveling to it or conducting financial transactions with it. The U.S. State Department asked the neutral Swiss Embassy in Havana to investigate whether the ship could be there. But Cuban authorities insisted it had not put into any Cuban port and that no Cuban radio receivers had picked up any signal from the Sulphur Queen. After an investigation, The Coast Guard concluded there was good reason for the ship to sink, because frankly, there were plenty of reasons why the ship should never have been on sea at all. Former crewmen told investigators that fires were common aboard the ship, along the sides of the four large sulfur tanks. Sulfur was caked in spaces below the tanks, indicating many cracks in the structure. The former crew testified about corrosion everywhere, inoperable temperature gauges, and a ruptured steam coil. The ship also had what was called a weak back, meaning there was a point along the keel that too easily weakened by corrosion. That very point had split on several of the Sulphur Queen's sister tankers. Now, the month before the Queen sailed from Beaumont, it was scheduled for a dry dock inspection, but the ship's owners postponed it, complaining that their cargo deliveries were behind schedule and they needed all of their ships working to catch up. Investigators also heard from the wife of one of the missing sailors, Mrs. Adam Martin. Her husband's first voyage on the Queen was also his last. She testified, I never wanted to be a seaman's wife, but he had to earn a living. I came to see him off. The poor soul. I felt sorry for him when he first saw his new ship. It looked like a floating garbage can. In the end, without the actual ship available, the Coast Guard Board could only make an educated guess as to the cause, and they came up with four theories. That an explosion may have occurred in the cargo tanks, that the vessel's hull may have failed and broken in two, that the ship might have capsized in that storm, or that a steam explosion caused the fatal damage. Within weeks of the disappearance, five wives, including Albert Van Sickle's wife, June, filed a lawsuit seeking $2.5 million in damages, saying the ship was clearly unsafe, unseaworthy, and not safe for hauling liquid sulfur. That suit dragged on in the courts for nearly a decade. In 1972, the U.S. Court of Appeals finally concluded the ship was not structurally sound nor properly inspected and found the owners liable. Damages were awarded to relatives of the crew members, but the court denied punitive damages, saying they were limited by the fact that nobody could say what exactly took the ship down. This ship might have faded into history with the thousands of other lost ships that have been forgotten, but the year after it was lost, a writer named Vincent Gaddis had an article in the Argosy magazine he created an aura of mystery around some plane and ship disappearances in an area roughly bordered by Miami, San Juan, Puerto Rico, and Bermuda. For more than a decade before Gaddis's article, others had written about what they saw as an area uniquely prone to unexplained disappearances. But Gaddis gave the phenomenon a name. He coined it the Bermuda Triangle the first Triangle victim on Gaddis's list was the Marine Sulphur Queen. His piece reduced the ship's fate to simply sailing into the unknown, and it was an idea that stuck. The Sulphur Queen was included in the sci-fi channel documentary The Bermuda Triangle, Startling New Secrets, and in a 1977 episode of that Leonard Nimoy series In Search Of. Well, basically, if you find an anthology format of Bermuda Triangle victims in any list, you'll see the Sulphur Queen. Others have challenged the idea that there was some supernatural dimension whisking travelers away. Some researchers insist the number of craft missing from that area isn't significantly greater, proportionally speaking, than anywhere else. And what little increase there is, could be attributed to the area being where tropical cyclones are more frequent. For the men missing from the Marine Sulphur Queen, there are no graves for their loved ones to visit, with the exception of John Hoosh, Jr. at Mount Peace Cemetery in Akron. His parents rest beneath a gravestone, marking their final place as John and Elizabeth Hoosh, and above their names... A photo of John Jr. and the words, In memory of our beloved son, lost on the sulfur queen.
0: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. We are also a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts, the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information or to check out other shows on this network, please visit evergreenpodcasts.com. And don't forget to check out our new YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Ohio Mysteries. And we'll see you Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio Mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week. May all of your mysteries have happy endings.